Hello, welcome to Wheat from the Chaff. I'm Finn Locustain, the editor-in-chief of 8.9.com. And I'm Phil Carson, the UK Head of Policy for the Nature-Friendly Farming Network. And later on in the programme, we're going to be joined by Rhys Evans, who's the country manager of the Nature Friendly Farming Network in Wales. But before that, we're going to start by working our way through some of the stories on 8.9 that have grabbed our attention this week. And first of all, Phil, let's start with high-tech aerial mapping reveals England's hedgerow landscape. Now, this is uh, about LiDAR data. It's LiDAR research that's been used, and it's found 390,000 kilometres of hedgerows. Uh, But these three 190,000 kilometres are the amount of hedgerow that sort of fell within a particular height and a particular quality. So this is between one and six metres. There was an additional 67,000 kilometres of hedgerow below one metre. So that's, I guess, more scrappy uh, hedgerow or newly planted hedgerow that wasn't captured in that original number. And also then 180,000 kilometres above that six metres. So so that's a substantial amount, but it's still an awful lot less than we used to have. It is indeed. It is indeed. I just want to say do you know how many times you could go around the world with that 390,000 kilometers of hedgerows just before we go into into this don't test me just tell me it's 10 times 10 times around the world is it really yeah yeah so yeah quite quite, that's a lot of hedge it is a lot of hedge it is it is and that's notwithstanding the areas which um yeah below one meter or, or above that six meter threshold but yeah it demonstrates that whilst we do have a considerable hedgerow network in England. It's nowhere near where it, where it used to be, and we we did experience, I suppose, a lot of hedgerow removal, mismanagement of that. It was directed by policy at the time, and now we're in a process of trying to to rebuild and restore those those networks. So this this work will be really important in meeting or directing some of the targets within the environmental improvement plan. So the government has a commitment to increase hedgerow coverage across England. And some of these targets, yeah, they're, they're, they're not insignificant. So um, there's a target to create or restore 30,000 miles of hedgerows a year by 2037 and then 45,000 miles a year by, by 2050. So this work will help to target where new hedgerows could go, but also where that restoration work needs to take place as well. Fantastic. And I think it's also really important. I mean, that's obviously looking to the future and looking at where the hedges are, where the hedges could be, and making sure that um, the government is able to sort of meet those targets and to monitor uh, the way that it's meeting those targets going forward. But there's also a historical element to there as well to it as well, isn't there? Because hedges have been part of the rural land landscape in Britain right back to the Bronze Age. And my understanding from talking to uh, colleagues elsewhere is that, you know, this data could also be used in archaeology terms and, and provide some really useful historical information. And, and I think as well, within that LIDAR work, there's the potential for some really super helpful uh, information around watercourses and historic watercourses in order to try and understand what the land has been used for in the past, the way the land has been used in the past, when perhaps it was wasn't able when there weren't lots of tractors and the ability to pipe water underground in order to help restore some of that natural land function. And I'm reminded of uh, a field that was consistently flooding when I lived in Scotland. And when I went and investigated it, there was a little coppice up the hill from that woodland and there was quite a deep cutting and it it wasn't a a human cutting. It was one where the water had cut through, you know, probably to two or three metres of depth over the course of 
goodness knows how many years. But then in Victorian times, this water that had clearly run across the field beforehand had been diverted and all these clay pipes were now, you know, breaking apart under there. But you could really trace, and it wasn't easy, but you could trace where the water had gone across that field and then across the road and across another field before it then hit the main burn. And if the farmer had simply tried to re reinvigorate or to replace that original watercourse, then they probably have sorted out their flooding issues rather than what they were doing, which was just trying to dig down and find where these clay pipes were, were breaking up in order to replace them with plastic. Yeah, so the LiDAR work is quite important in informing what we do in the future, but getting a better understanding of what we've done in the past. And this is a little bit of an aside, but yeah, there's nothing more, um, I suppose, interesting and intriguing than trying to, to understand how land was previously used whenever you're engaging with it. And yeah, it'd be cool to be able to corroborate that through the use of, the, of this data as well to see, was I right? Was I on the right track or was I completely It's almost off? cheating, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's almost, it's like being Miss Marple and trying to work your way through the clues, but then being given the answer in the first place. And so it, it, absolutely, you know, phenomenally helpful information. What's story number two, Phil? Yes, so the second story that we're going to quickly look at today is um, titled Economists Calculate Multi-Trillion Dollar Opportunity to Fix the Global Food System. So this is a bit of work which has tried to look at two different scenarios um, of, of where our food system could could go. So I suppose it's, it's the status quo and then a process of food system transformation. So this has been undertaken by economists and scientists from the Food System Economics Commission, or FSEC for short. And what they've tried to do is calculate the hidden costs of the global food system, um, but also yeah, what, what benefits could be delivered by trans transitioning to something new. So I'll just talk about the two pathways very, very briefly. So the first one is the current trends pathway. And within this, they, um, they estimate that by 2050, food insecurity will leave 640 million people um, underweight in some parts of the world. We'll also see an increase in obesity and that will rise by 70% globally. So think about the public health costs on that side. Food systems will continue to drive up to a third of global greenhouse gas emissions and this will contribute towards global warming of 2.7 degrees Celsius. So going well beyond that 1.5 degrees threshold that we're aiming for at the moment. This will make us more vulnerable to climate change and we will be more subjected to and more vulnerable to extreme weather events. So it's a pretty bleak picture of the future. However, they do have a food systems transformation scenario, and this really focuses on the implementation of better policies and practices, and it helps to um, eradicate undernutrition, um, saving 174 million lives from premature death. Um, food systems become a net carbon sink by 2040, and that helps to limit global warming to, to 1.5 degrees, so that threshold of which is a, a safe operating space for humanity. In doing this, we protect an additional 1.4 billion hectares of land. We have the nitrogen sur surplus from agriculture. We write reverse biodiversity loss. And then within this, we see 400 million farm workers um, enjoying a more sufficient and stable income as well. So, yeah, two, two potentially, um, yeah, I suppose two very, very different visions of the future and some very, very interesting work. And to me, I suppose, in short, it just really demonstrates the need for change, but for change in a holistic way to deliver all of these different outcomes at the same time. Let's go on to story number 
number three. Yes. So this piece is on the US-Canada trade deal in which the UK government has been commended for its decision to walk away from negotiations and to not concede preferential access to the UK market from um, from Canada um, based on food, food safety concerns and a range of other, other kind of considerations within that as well. So, yeah, generally uh, a bit of an evolution from some of the, the feedback that the UK government had had previously with negotiations with Australia, which um, apparently if you, you handed your demands in a napkin to the Prime Minister, you got everything you wanted and more to something that is a bit more mature and considered and standing up for UK interests a bit more within that as well. Minette Batters has come out to say the government's decision to walk away from trade talks aimed at enhancing the trading relationship between the UK and Canada would have been difficult, but it's the right decision. On products such as beef and cheese, Canada was demanding too much and offer it, offering too little, therefore preventing progress to the benefit of both countries. So a departure from what we'd seen recently to, I think, a bit more of a mature approach to to trade, which is a welcome step considering some of the things we're going to be talking about later on in the podcast. And the only thing that I really want to say on this is that, you know, we are trying to improve the standards in terms of ecology, in terms of some of the societal animal welfare uh, elements within uh, food production in the UK. And if we're going to do that, then the last thing we want to do is to allow food that's been produced to lower standards in through the back door or or the front door, you know, if it's through a trade deal. Uh, And so really important that the government supports farmers as they are trying to work towards better standards uh, at home. Let's move on to the next story. This is the Soil Association pushes back against criticism of organic salmon. And this is a story uh, about 30 Scottish community organisations who signed an open letter that was coordinated, I think, by Wild Fish uh, Coastal Communities Network and the Blue Marine Foundation. And this was sent to the CEOs of the Soil Association and Soil Association certification in response to the organisation's public consultation around uh, updating of organic uh, fish farming standards. And the letter highlights, uh, as you you might expect the negative impact on the environment, welfare and sustainability associated with salmon farming in Scotland. But there was they slightly undermined themselves, I think, Wildfish in particular, um, through an investigation. They had some diver footage that was looking at a Soil Association registered salmon farm that was looking in the cages and finding deformities and disease. Um, and, and of course, as we know, sea lice in general is a problem in terms of uh, in terms of salmon farming. But when I looked at this story, it came from The Guardian. They'd very much taken the wild fish line. And when I went to the Soil Association for a comment, they were able to come back to me with chapter and verse about the way in which uh, this farm, yes, it was registered with the Soil Association, but they weren't producing for the Soil Association at the time. It was just, there were fish, there were salmon that were going into uh, the standard market. And to be an organic salmon, that salmon needs to have been in an organic system from birth to death and the standards within the organic sector are of course an awful lot higher uh, than within the the standard sector and look there's there's no doubt in my mind that there are challenges with salmon aquaculture um, that there are environmental challenges some ethical challenges sea lice as I mentioned you know is, is a particular concern in some of the uh, the, uh, the the chemicals that are used to wash off uh, the sea lice but organic salmon is better and I understand and there is a live discussion taking place at the Soil Association about the certification of salmon. But I think there is a general recognition and certainly they've come down on the side that 
organic is better. And the final thing I want to say before I just ask you to come in, Phil, on this, is I'm interested in the way that news stories are made, obviously as editor of 8.9. And as I said, The Guardian took this story and it took the wild fish line. I suspect that they went and spoke to the Soil Association, but it still became a story about how bad salmon can be, where our headline, which was Soil Association pushes back against criticism, was trying to be much fairer and much more honest, much more rounded in the way that we uh, that we wrote this up, because it, it's not to say that wild fish were getting everything wrong. They weren't. And, and, and the Soil Association, when I spoke to them, they were at pains to say that they really support a lot of the work that Wildfish is doing. But in this instance, they just wanted to push back that the footage that had been collected, it wasn't accurate uh, in the way that it was being portrayed. It would be interesting to get um, a sense of whether there's an acknowledgement as to, to the fact that, okay, um, Wildfish maybe, maybe didn't get the whole side of the story as part of this investigation. And look, it brings into play lots of yeah tricky debates within the food system itself so we know that as a population we are not consuming the the required level of kind of oily fish omega-3s all those sorts of things which are absolutely crucial for brain health and can help to address or uh, mitigate against the impacts of alzheimer's and a whole range of different conditions so we're being told that we we need to need to increase consumption of that and then, yeah, meeting that market demand or trying to kind of bolster that sort of uptake of those dietary requirements. You've got um, aquaculture coming into play and a whole lot of kind of tricky issues within that too. I want to come on to the fifth story. And I'd just like you to tell me, Phil, how can I get rich by turning my farm over to beetle banks? Yes, Finlow. So if you are in the business of managing species-rich grasslands or restoring or creating them, you could be in for quite a big payout. So this is a piece which states that there's a big win for grassland but farmers need more. And essentially, this is a focus on the increased payment rates, which were announced in the recent Agriculture Transition Plan update, which have yeah, significantly increased the rates for species-rich grassland in another number of elements of elms. So um, yeah, for example, in some circumstances, Farmers who had previously been offered £182 per hectare can now expect to receive £646 per hectare for the same area of land. So this is quite a significant uplift in payment rates, which has been broadly well. And I was being cheeky about the beetle banks because for beetle banks, it's over £800. It is. It is. And generally... That's as a result of um, beetle blanks being put into more productive areas of land. This has been the issue with species-rich grasslands. Generally, they are found in less productive landscapes where you have um, less income to forego from managing them um, compared to, I suppose, an arable farm in the lowlands, which may be um, receiving quite a lot of money from food production. So the cost of delivering it is, I suppose, is, is higher per se. But that didn't take into account the economic and ecological value of delivering species-rich grasslands and managing the right, which I think these payment rates have tried to to better account for. It's not all rosy, so um, plant life are caveating their welcome 
with some points that the SFI payment rates aren't as high as they should be, that this might still result in farmers um, inappropriately managing species-rich grasslands or plowing them up and putting in herbal lays, for example, which will have a high payment rate. And then the other thing that they, they point to is the need for high-quality management advice to make the most of these options and to deliver the outcomes in the right place, to deliver the right benefits as well. But this has been welcomed. There's still more to go and more detail required from DEFRA, but I think from our perspective, it's a positive step as well. Brilliant. Thanks so much for that. Let's take a break. And we're back and we're joined by Rhys Evans, the country manager of the Nature Friendly Farming Network in Wales. Now, Rhys, lots of farmer discontent reported uh, around the Welsh replacement of the common agricultural policy. What do you think are the key stumbling blocks? What is it that farmers are concerned about? I think the biggest Stumbling block, or the biggest concern, is the size of the of, of the SFS budget. Uh, so the financial side of things. There was a report done last year which estimated that we need around five hundred million pounds per year in Wales for the Welsh government to meet its uh, environmental priorities through land management. But we've we've seen a slash or a reduction of sixty two million pounds in the budget this year. And that's a reduction of thirteen percent. So the SFS it's clearly um, under budgeted. When you look at the aims and ambitions of the scheme and how much uh, the Welsh government, I guess, depend really on, on farmers uh, in terms of delivering sort of multiple benefits from the land, food production, uh, carbon sequestration, biodiversity benefits, uh, you know, tourism, uh, contributing to the wider rural economy. We as farmers, we've got the potential to deliver on so many of the Welsh government's priorities and the budget for rural affairs is only about 2% of the entire Welsh government budget. For me, the, the biggest barrier really is, is the size of, of, of the budget. Where does the blame for that lie? Is that because Wales just has a lot less money to spread around? Or is it because they've taken a decision to slash the agricultural budget more than they've perhaps cut other budgets? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I don't envy Welsh government's position um, I think that they need to, there's a shortfall of around 1.2 or 1.3 billion. Agriculture certainly isn't the only sector that's uh, facing cuts in funding. But I, yeah, just to reiterate that the benefits that we can deliver with a fully funded scheme sort of cuts across all aspects of the Welsh Government portfolio. So that gives us a bit of context, I guess. If any conversation that's taking place with farmers throughout this consultation period, you know, that we got to at the moment is is underpinned by this fear about the amount of money that's actually physically available, then it's not surprising that there are, uh, that there are bones of contention within it. But one of these contentious points is around trees. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Finlow. It, it's by far been the most contentious aspect of the detail of the sustainable farming scheme uh, by a long shot, um, I would say. Um, so the proposal is um, for farmers to receive a universal payment as part of this sort of universal actions tier of the SFS. Uh, 10% of the farm uh, needs to be under woodland or, or tree covered. Yeah, naturally, a lot of farmers are, are worried about this. Uh, I will caveat that there is some flexibility incorporated within the consultation in that it's not necessarily 10% of the entire holding of the farm. It's 10% after you remove sort of some of the ineligible or unplantable areas. So your farm tracks and roads, um, 
your priority habitat, peatlands, uh, SSIs, SACs, you know, designated landscapes, uh, or any other sort of ineligible planting areas like rocky outcrops on, on sort of uh, mountainous land. There. Is this new planting, or, or does it incorporate planting that already exists, it, it uh, coppicing and hedges? That already exists, and I think there's a criticism of, of government in not making that clear. I think there are still farmers out there who believe that it's an additional 10% planting on top of what you already have. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's it's meeting 10%, which includes what you already have, yeah. So to the nub of this then, Rhys, there are lots of farmers who seem to be thinking that trees are somehow in conflict with food production. Is that the case? No, I, I don't think that's the case. Not necessarily. There is a narrative at play, you're right, that sort of pits food production against trees, that somehow they're antagonistic and you have to choose. It's either farming or planting trees. But we know it's well documented and well evidenced that strategically well-placed planted woodlands, be it trees in a silvo pasture or agroforestry system, actually yields significant advantages to the farm business. Yeah, forget about the all the environmental benefits, but it's the sort of the efficiency, the productivity gains um, associated are, are well documented. But also from a food production point of view as well. One quote I, I come up against quite often is that you can't grow a steak on a tree, which is true. But, you know, your fruit, uh, your nuts, they do grow on trees. And, you know, that, that those are foodstuffs that we really need to produce more of in Wales as well. But I do understand where the concern comes from, because at the moment, I think it's a, a poorly thought out blanket 10% policy with very little strategic thinking behind it. Um, and with any blanket policy, I think it can be judged as being quite lazy. Just one other question before I uh, before I get Phil to come in and, and, uh, and ask the questions that he's got. I'm just wondering whether... <laughs> Farmers are sort of encouraged to think about other commercial elements of woodland. You know, woodland, you mentioned there, you know, nuts and fruits, but there are other ways that you can monetize woodland, aren't there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you've, um, you're right. Um, so we have many members who uh, who actually have broadleaf sort of hardwood commercial woodland enterprise where you can build a sort of whole rural economy around. There's always this argument that when you plant trees, it sort of devalues the land or... Uh, has a negative effect on the wider rural economy. But, you know, there are jobs that can be created and an income stream that also can be created from, from woodland. But I guess the point is you need to think about why you're planting trees. It's the right tree in the right place for the right purpose. And at the moment, the tree planting target is driven solely by carbon sequestration. But you need to think about biodiversity. You need to think about the productivity and efficiency gains, the economic value. Uh, the, the the issue with a focus or, or a narrow focus on a sole issue is, is that you might then have perverse outcomes uh, on all those other other benefits that we'd like to see from trees. Race, one of the things of which there's been a lot of attention directed to has been the uh, impact assessment that's been undertaken and in particular the reduction or proposed or I suppose assumed reduction in livestock numbers so that's been quoted around 11 percent um yeah and, and there's been quite a lot of argument and debate around that and where do you see this and do you see it as a as a massive economic disbenefit or is there a bit more nuance within that there is a lot of nuance to it, failure rights, but um, nuance doesn't really sort of cut through the narrative. Um, it does, it's, it's not uh, particularly newsworthy, is it? I think there are three points, really, I'd like to, to make up on this subject, really. The first being that a reduction in, in livestock number doesn't necessarily mean uh, a reduction in, 
farm uh, business sort of uh, income. Uh, we've done uh, a few reports with the Nature Penny Farming Network, uh, the Nature Means Business in Wales report, and the Farming at the Sweet Spot report that shows actually you could potentially increase profitability by 45% when farms sort of actively work with the natural environment and sort of manage production sustainably more in tune with, with the natural carrying capacity of the land. Secondly, there's a lot of evidence as well that working with nature, uh, particularly sort of increasing species diversity in swards and grasslands um, and effective grazing management, yeah, so establishing sort of rotational mob grazing systems can increase profitability while maintaining or even increasing the level of output as well. So that sort of flies in the face of this narrative that nature-friendly farming means an automatic reduction in, in livestock. I guess the third issue relates to sort of the, the, the whole sort of approach to agri-environment schemes in Wales and this notion that it is an inevitability around falling livestock numbers with um, agri-environment schemes. Well, this is only the case because, again, of a sort of a blanket approach to stock reduction on habitat land in Wales and plastic sort of plastic agri-environment schemes, particularly in the uplands. Now, I understand why that approach was taken. Uh, it was mainly to correct the sort of the the, the issues uh, that were prevalent with with hedge payments and intensification of farms. Uh, particularly on some upland habitats. Now, where stock has been reduced, it has actually made a lot of difference. You've seen habitats regenerate the reintroduction of species, for example. But on our hill, for example, where there's been a blanket approach to reducing stocking numbers, uh, actually it's a sort of rank millennia that's dominating. Uh, the heather's getting a bit too leggy on the moor, I would argue, uh, and you're losing species like uh, like grouse. So, um, yeah, what we need in some instances to get a really effective results for, for nature is actually more livestock. But appreciate it's not the same for every land parcel. There's a lot of complexities anyone's associated with that. So in, in terms of this impact assessment, has it been a flaw in how the modelling has been undertaken, which hasn't taken into account some of these things? Or has it been the communication of the impact in terms of that potential reduction in output actually not impacting profitability, or is it a mix of both? Uh, a mix of mix of both, I would say. Um, yeah, well, I think I guess what what is being lost in the narrative as well is that sort of some of the figures are the sort of the the worst case scenarios as well, and also it fails to model the impact of the optional and collaborative elements of the scheme as well. So one of our key asks as a network is the sort of the, the immediate rollout really of the optional and collaborative layer. So we have like a fully functional three-tiered scheme in operation, well, by 2026 at the latest, really, because essentially there's maybe like 50% of the scheme that's not considered in this modelling. So yeah, the immediate rollout um, yeah, needs to happen right now. Just taking that question around, you know, the consultation a bit further, how do you think the Welsh government has handled the conversation overall? Because, you know, I remember six months ago when uh, when Parliament was away over the summer recess and the Glastier organic scheme in particular, funding for that, they announced that that was going to be cut, but nobody was given any additional information. So there was this great big vacuum that sort of existed for several weeks, several months even, where uh, organic farmers just thought that you know the end of their money was coming and they just didn't know how they could plan their business for the future so how how's welsh government done i mean when if you rewind 
back to the first consultation, which I think was in 2018, the, the Brexit and Alarm consultation. What was proposed then is, I, I would argue, it is very different to what is being proposed now, in that the first iteration of the scheme had like two separate schemes, if you like. You had an economic resilience scheme, which focused on improving efficiency and productivity, and you had like a public good scheme. So that was your payment for uh, delivering environmental benefits on the farm. But ve- very much a siloed approach where the danger was that you would have lots of maybe nature-friendly farms, maybe in the uplands of Wales, and then the lowlands, you would have very sort of intensive farms. At least now, I think this is recognition that you can do all this holistically on the farm landscape, yeah, in a land sort of land sharing approach. Um, so in that sense, I think the Welsh government have, have listened to a lot of the concerns and, and things have changed. And have they been out? Have they been out sort of, you know, uh, pressing the flesh and doing lots of meetings uh, around the country, meeting with farmers during the course of this? Or has it been largely an online exercise? I mean, there's, there's been opportunity, countless opportunities to feed into the consultation. Um, there's been co-design workshops uh, with farmers to develop aspects of the scheme, um, stakeholder meetings where various uh, interested parties can sort of voice their concerns uh, or, or opinions. So I think the opportunity has been there. It's, it, it has been provided. Whether or not the Welsh Government have listened to those concerns, it, the answer, I think, will vary on, depend on, on, on who you ask, really. But you mentioned o- o- organics. You know, that, that's, that's a big worry in that there's a scheme that's been in place for, for this year to plug the funding gap. But beyond this year, there's nothing really in the scheme to distinguish like the additional benefits that organic farming or either sort of non-organic farming, but sort of nature-friendly farming really uh, delivers beyond the sort of baseline requirements of the scheme. And it's a big worry for the network, really, that a lot of nature-friendly farmers are being disadvantaged, particularly in the short term. Fantastic. Rhys, we're going to have to leave it there. Let's take a break. We're back. And thanks so much again to Reese Evans for coming on and talking to us. That was fascinating. And, and thanks, Phil, for organising that interview. That was really helpful. In the last section, we just wanted to sort of pick up on these farmer protests that are taking place across Europe and the conversation that's taking place across the farming media and in the, uh, the sort of farming public, really, about whether those protests are likely to make their way to the UK. And of course, the UK is in a very different place because of Brexit, from the rest of Europe. Uh, But the headline that we're sort of starting off from on 8.9 is farming risks being lured by far-right rhetoric. And as farming protests become more pronounced and widespread, farmer author and columnist Joe Stanley has warned UK farmers about being lured by opportunistic far-right rhetoric. And, And in particular, he says, look, farming across Europe is facing significant challenges. However, some of these groups have gravitated or been lured towards more unsavoury populist political platforms, demagogues of the far right have embraced the farmer movements, using them to amplify their own deeply unsavoury anti-ethno-nationalist agendas, usually combined with climate change denial as well. He says that he would warn British farmers to be careful about how much of this narrative they reflexively support. Now, I've been thinking about this over the course of the weekend, and I've been looking and listening to some of the interviews that have taken place elsewhere in the media, and it strikes me 
that we're in a very different landscape, as I said. The EU protests are very much, uh, they're centred on Brussels. Obviously, they, they're taking place, you know, within particular nations, so Germany or Poland or uh, France, uh, and they're wanting their own governments to, uh, to argue their case. But really, it's Brussels-centric. And in Brussels, we have um, directives, we have legislation that hasn't yet come into place. And the other thing that seems to me to be consistent in this, that an awful lot of the protest and a lot of the media coverage anyway seems to be against greener farming. It's against the environmental measures um, such as action to reduce chemical use or taxes on, on petrochemicals. Whereas here, almost all of the talk, all of the interviews that I've heard around protest have been focused towards the retailers, that it's not about the transition to more sustainable agriculture, but it's about unfairness in the supply chain. Uh, so perhaps in the UK, there's more of a recognition of the need to change the way that we farm, but there is uh, a real desire for retailers to take on their fair share of the cost and their fair share of the risk. I think there are similarities and differences between arguments over here and across across in Europe as well. And I think whilst much of the narrative um, in the EU side of things is very much focused on farmer reaction to increased environmental ambition or increased environmental regulation, I think it's a little bit more of a kind of complex picture and there's a lot of different driving driving forces within that and I think the environment is part of the reason that for this reaction but it's not the whole part and there's a bit of a bogeyman being created here in, in some respects. There's a number of different things all kind of bubbling along here. One of them is trade. So the European Union is negotiating um, with South American bloc as part of the, the Mercosur trade agreement at the moment. And that brings with it the potential for um, European farmers to be to be undercut, for their market to be flooded by uh, with beef and other livestock products from from areas where, where standards aren't as high. So there's that floating around within it. There's also been, um, I think, some quite a lot of kickback against EU steps to provide a market for uh, Ukrainian um, agricultural produce. So that's poultry, that's eggs, that's a whole range of different things. And um, they removed tariffs from their imports there to try and, I suppose, give them a bit of, a, of support to address or deal with um, with the war in Ukraine. And so as a result of that, you saw EU sugar imports from Ukraine rising 1000% in 2023. Um, egg imports doubled, poultry imports were 50% were higher. So I think there's a little bit of, of, of frustration and, and anger at that. There's also, I, I'm getting a sense of unease around the fact that um, the Ukraine and this ongoing conversation about um, them joining the European Union, I've, I've read in some places that there's concerns that a new country with an agricultural sector of that size might take up a large part of the of the cap budget as well. So there's all of these these bits and pieces taking place as well as, as, as questions around supply chain and a fair, a fair deal. And I think in both instances, there's frustration at the system itself as a whole and some areas are maybe being pulled out more so than others. It's interesting, isn't it? And as I was saying to begin with, there is that element around uh, greening uh, of legislation, the trying to improve the sustainability of agriculture. But when you bring in those elements uh, around South America and around Ukraine, 
and possibly some elements around climate change and, and, and concerns about the impact of climate change policy. It's easy to see why the far right would be interested in jumping on that particular bandwagon. Yeah, you can you can see why frustration and a very challenging landscape for farmers and I suppose a sense of not being listened to by, by government is being co-opted by organisations with um, yeah pretty nefarious agendas. Yeah, I think I think Joe makes a very very pertinent point in terms of the fact that he understands where farmers are coming from, and in many ways supports what they are calling for, but also makes the point that um, this can be co-opted by organisations and individuals that that don't have your best interests at heart. I think. I think what we should do is just to sort of talk briefly about the EU context a little bit more and then come back to the UK in terms of answering that question or trying to address that question of whether this kind of protest is is likely to happen here. I mean, the first thing to say is I think a lot of the rhetoric around the protest, a lot of the headlines have been overblowing things a little bit. I was hearing an interview where, yeah, the trunk roads, you know, the big motorways going into Paris, for example, they were, uh, you know, they were closed off, but there were plenty of other ways of getting into Paris. Uh, So, you know they were well organised, and it was it was good media that came out for uh, the, for the farmers. But um, it wasn't as if they were really genuinely laying siege to Paris or, or other places around there. But in terms of the European Union, one of the things that always struck me in the uh, in the campaigning around Brexit and the in the sort of run up to the referendum was the way in which over the course of the last twenty or thirty years, I mean, suddenly you got people trying to tell everybody that the European Union, you know, was fantastic. It had achieved this, that, and the other. There was all this, you know, fantastic legislation that had been achieved and, you know, this was why we needed to stay there. But for a lot of people, it was the first time they'd heard anything really positive about the European Union. Uh, And that kind of gets to the nub of this, that if the European Union comes up with something good and the general public in a particular nation sees it as good, then the national government will lay claim to it and they'll say that it was their idea in the first place. And if the EU does something that isn't popular with the general public, then the EU gets the blame. And so in either way, the European Union and the Commission in particular sort of gets gets the thin end of the wedge around that. And obviously, as I say, we, we are at this stage where we've seen a gutting out, really, of a lot of the farm to fork um, objectives, the, the real greening that the European Union was trying to achieve. But before those directives come into, into force, that's obviously a fruitful time for farmers to protest. And in the same way that, you know, it seems to me the NFU here is trying to damp down talks of of mass protest and that sort of thing. Copacajaca across in the European Union doesn't seem to be doing the same thing, if anything. They're kind of winding the issue up a little bit because they see it as a good opportunity uh, to put some pressure on them and really just to achieve the political objectives that they've had throughout the uh, the negotiations. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the Farm to Fork strategy and the Sustainable Use of Pesticides Directive, um, which was had an ambition to reduce pesticide use across the EU by 50%. Um, there was an ambition to increase organic land cover by 25%, reduce artificial fertilizer use by 20%. Yeah, quite ambitious targets. And as you say, there's been a process in which those have been diluted in some cases and thrown out entirely in others. Watching it from afar, there has been this growing um, kind of narrative of... Um, Europe being unable to feed itself as a result of these environmental ambitions being put into place. 
I don't think, I suppose whenever you, you get to, I don't think it's been handled as well as it could have. And I think more of a, a case could have been made to the, the impact that these, if done well, would actually have in improving food security and improving farmer livelihoods and improving farm incomes. Um, the nature restoration law, for example, um, it was calling for 10% of land to be given and to be managed with a specific focus on, on, on biodiversity objectives, which we know doesn't necessarily have an impact on yield or profitability, for example. So this has been rumbling in the background for two years. And I think the timing, yeah, it's probably, yeah, there, there's something behind the timing. There's another question here in terms of where the common agriculture policy goes next and how much of the heavy lifting that agriculture in the EU does to meet the EU's climate targets. And I was reading a piece recently that DG Agri and DG Climate, they're having a bit of a debate or an argument in terms of how stringent the targets are for agriculture in meeting um, the European Union's climate objectives. So there's some parts of that potentially on in the background as well. What I'm not sure about and what I haven't heard much about is the idea that actually this isn't a choice, that greening isn't a choice. It's something that's going to be, that's going to come either because we're forced by ecological collapse or it's going to be something that comes because we've chosen to make these uh, decisions in a timely fashion and and here we you know we're talking about you know the various different things that you've uh, that you've discussed there at the heart of the protest but there needs to be an understanding doesn't there that resilience for your business resilience for your land uh, comes back to ecological security and the need to make the transition away from the type of farming that has been promoted by governments and by retailers over the last few decades to something that's really quite different and I I spoke to a former French colleague in order to try and get a bit of a, a better understanding around this. And she was saying that, you know, there are mechanisms, just as there are in the UK, for example, for people to sign petitions and trigger debates in the National Assembly, um, you know, even if not in Parliament. And so there are, that, I mean, that's just France, but I imagine that these things exist elsewhere. And she said that, you know, there has been a conversation that's been managed at national level around the farm to fork strategy around the need to make the transition. But it perhaps comes back to the fact that the farming lobby in Brussels is perhaps just an awful lot stronger than the environmental lobby and therefore much more successful in uh, in getting their own way, in making MEPs and the Commission feel nervous about their positions uh, if they take on the farmers uh, more than Copacajaga wants them to. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair challenge to make. When you look at um, the level of investment that European agriculture gets from from the common agriculture policy, it's pretty huge. It's a third of the total budget. Um, That's going to remain in place for for quite a considerable amount of time. I don't see that going anytime soon. Whereas in England, you've got a shift away from area-based payments entirely. Um, You've also got, as you say, those more ambitious pieces of environmental policy and legislation being diluted and, and, and stripped back, which kind of demonstrates the level of, I, I suppose, power that's within that or within that lobby. And I think the question within this, though, is do farmers on the ground feel as if they are being listened to and that those concessions are enough? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. But there's a very interesting piece from from Chatham House recently, which, which talks about how um, the transition to um, environmental sustainability and the, the need to handle that well and and for just transition to be to be kind of embedded within all of this and that's just not telling people what they need to do but that's bringing them along with this and part of that 
I suppose, is trying to address some of the potential vested interests and to tackle them effectively without yeah. causing massive, massive headaches for yourself as well. It's very, very t- difficult. And again, in terms of context and coming back to that idea of resilience, I think the, the whole sort of transition or the move, the awareness of regenerative agriculture is very different here uh, to in France. I mean, obviously, there's been agroecology in France, but regenerative agriculture is very much an English-speaking uh, movement. And so it isn't very big across mainland Europe in the way that it is here. And the conversation around regen, the, the growth of regen, has happened in line with the growth in the use of social media like WhatsApp and you know very much around the time period that we've been having this pro- this post-Brexit conversation. So I, I think there will be very few farmers in the UK, whether they agree with it or not, who aren't aware of Regen, who aren't aware of the conversations around the need to change. And I, I wonder if that's a, a little bit different to mainland Europe. So coming on to could it happen here? Because clearly there are people who are agitating for protest. And we discussed uh, last week the uh, the Riverford campaign, Get Fair, Get Fair About Farming, uh, where 100,000 signatures were collected. We had this debate in Parliament um, and the Groceries Codes Adjudicator is now uh, consulting uh, members on, on how it should do things differently. So I think it's fair to say We do have an industry on the brink. We are going through enormous change. Farmers are aware of enormous change in terms of the way that they're being paid by the public. And some farmers won't get through to the other side uh, and there'll be some new entrants who do incredibly well out of it. So there is this big transition that's taking place. And what we don't want is a cliff edge. And you talked about the just transition. If we go back to the 1980s and what happened to the coal mining communities, where, you know, coal, we stopped trading coal, we stopped digging it out of the ground and those communities were just left to flounder. And the difference is that unlike coal, of course, we're still going to need food. Farmers are still going to be essential, but we need to manage that transition. It needs to be just, it needs to be fair. And farmers need to be able to see themselves in a positive way. They need to understand how they're going to succeed in that new future in order to embrace that change story. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And I think whenever we look back to when the UK made the decision to leave the European Union and there was quite a large focus on food and farming and this being a massive opportunity to do things differently. And I think generally there was a degree of of excitement, but importantly, a degree of consensus as well, that this was the right the right way to go and that there was a way to kind of improve productivity, deliver environmental outcomes, deliver sustainable food production as well. And we're a good eight years down the road from their referendum result and it hasn't been smooth sailing the whole time. And that consensus has, I suppose, maybe not been as strong as it possibly was at the start. But at the same time, I think there's still quite a large body of the the agriculture sector which does see the need for change, um, but just wants that support to be able to deliver it effectively. And I think that's one of the key things for government is is how do they put that pathway into place and over the long term as well to communicate where farmers need to go, how they're going to support them to get there and what, what the light at the end of the tunnel genuinely looks like. I think as well, there's this question around kind of culture and um, there's the old kind of cliche of the, the French love of protest and I suppose are, are more readily to go onto onto the streets um, to kind of debate an issue or put an issue forward. 
And I get the sense that there's there's maybe not the same cultural similarities that we would have here as well. Um, so I think that has to be to be taken into account within all this too. And then also, whenever things do get brought into the public agenda, like the Get Fair About Farming campaign, that has brought a large body of the public on side with it. Whereas a protest done in some of the ways that they're being done in Europe potentially risks turning the public against you in some respects as well. And I think that needs to be taken into account too. And I think, you know, you're right to sort of pick up on the way that uh, the government has been engaging with this. And we can make the argument, and I do repeatedly, that there needs to be a lot more funding going in to help farmers make the transition. But they are engaged. And so I think the way that Riverford and others in the UK have been targeting their ire towards the retailers is the right way of doing things because they really have to challenge their economic model if they're going to uh, to sort of embrace the future in the way that's necessary. Their, their model is built on cheap food and very high externalised environmental and social costs. And I think it's highly unlikely that they're going to they're going to move voluntarily. And so there, there is perhaps a need for government to look at bringing in legislation so that retailers are able to move across the board. They can move as a level playing field together uh, because I don't think any, any of them are really going to make uh, a big change in their economic model because they'll see it as a competitive disadvantage yeah it's a crucial part of this i think government with with the agriculture act and and the powers that they had within that to to try and instill greater fairness within supply chains and also greater transparency were well aware of the need to influence the supply chain or compel the supply chain to act in different ways and and for me we can't have a just transition to public money for public goods or environmental payments without a fair return from the market and also a, a, a trade policy which which supports that as well. The changes we're requiring farmers to make are massive and the changes that we have to make to policy and legislation are also complex and difficult as well. And you can understand why progress has maybe been made in some areas less than others. In, in some respects, it's maybe politically more challenging to to compel the supply chain to act differently. But I think that's the next gap and the next stage within this to build more resilient food production and to ensure that, yeah, the costs aren't being unfairly borne by farmers whenever you have massive corporations and multinationals that have to play their part as well. The people who have really benefited from, you know, the last decades of the way that the financial support system has worked have been the retailers, haven't they? They've known precisely how much farmers are getting and they've been able to drive their contracts in a way that just means that farmers are ultimately being paid very little for the food they're producing at the same time as uh, as the profits of these big retailers just go up and up. And it really is about changing the economic model for farming, that it's no longer just about food, that it is about food and and climate and biodiversity and forestry and natural capital and fibre for clothes that we're embedding all of these different things, not necessarily on every farm, but they're all being embedded together. And to achieve that, you need to have a partnership of the farmers who have been obviously working the land since the Second World War and, and following the policies, but of the government that has been choosing the policies, bringing in the policies that have directed farmers to farm in a particular way, and of the retailers who have uh, been devising their contracts to force farmers to uh, to produce in particular ways. So we need this partnership approach. The public funding is too low, that needs to go up. 
Retailers need to share the risk and share some of the cost burden, and we need the natural capital marketplace uh, to be in place as well. That offers a big opportunity, but at the moment, it's still a future opportunity, and we need to accelerate delivery of that natural capital marketplace so that farmers can actually benefit from it. And this is the thing. So rather, and you can understand where people are coming from with this, but railing against change and in ways which maybe doesn't bring governments or people alongside with you is risky. And maybe there's the need for a compelling narrative which demonstrates farming's completely crucial role in delivering what government and society wants. But the fact that what we have at the moment in terms of the operating space, the funding, everything is totally insufficient. So if you want these things from farmers for society, for your government objectives, you need to do more. And this is what we want is is vitally important within all of this. Fantastic. Phil, let's leave it there. I've been Finn Locustain. Bye for now. And I've been Phil Carson. Bye for now. <laughs>